This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I have always been fascinated by words. I love to say them. I love to learn them. I even like to play with them. I get enormous enjoyment composing new lyrics to popular songs I hear on the radio, I create funny nicknames for people I love, and I abbreviate and manipulate words that I like to use. Brill is short for brilliant. Lunchville is my witty way of saying I am leaving for lunch. Heading to Snoopville means I am off to sleep, and taking a trip to Louisville is short for going to the loo. I also love to twist the meanings of things that aren't quite familiar, but should be. This started quite by accident. When I was little, I confused windmills with helicopters and band-aids with rubber bands. Sometimes words confound me. Years ago, after a particularly bad breakup with a boyfriend, I hopped into my Ford Civic with the exact intention of heading anywhere the road would take me. I put the pedal to the metal and ate up the highway, rudderless, lovelorn, but with the bubbling animal spirits of a free individual American woman to the core. I drove along the sinuate byways and over long, shaky bridges in their autumnal bleakness, seeing nothing but the dust of the road and the endless sky. And when I pulled off an exit ramp and entered a town in New Hampshire, whose name I have long forgotten, I was struck dumb by the cloud-cuckoo landscape in which I had found myself. Here there were bent-back trees with leaves in full bloom, high fields rife with flowers for which I had no name, and a scent in the air that was unblushing in its reminiscences of love. But most troubling of all was the main commercial drag, which sported stores that seemed to cater to those undismayed by romantic yearnings, the lovers who held hands on sun-drenched mornings, the married who shared kisses on moon-rippled nights. I walked the avenue as if spellbound, oblivious to the sidewalk strollers, There were storefronts that had the airy goodness of bath bubbles, touting cupids and poetic baubles, confectionaires with heart-shaped chocolates ensconced in velvet, stationery stores with the inevitable rank of Susan Polish Schultz greeting cards, restaurants with romance lighting, and, as if to add salt to the festering wound, a bedding retailer with a display of deep-dish mattresses that begged for languishing bodies, the embodiment of cozy sleep and dream. And though I forgot the name of the town itself, I never could blank my memory of the name of one particular flower shop, Turnsole of Rainy Lane. For a reason I couldn't quite fathom at the time, this sounded the alarm strokes within my skull, and I hightailed it out of there, back into the Fort Civic, back to New York in the comforts of slag cement and building brick, but thankfully not back to the bad boyfriend. In hindsight, I understood that it was the vital force emitted by the word turnsole that struck me to the quick. The turnsole, which is a plant that turns towards the sun very much like the heliotrope, signified for me not just a turning of my own soul, away from love, responsibility, and possibly even my sanity. 
The imagery conjured by the flower shop's name, that of a sun-facing plant immersed by a pouring rain on a lonely stretch, was too much for me to withstand. Sometimes, as James Joyce so aptly stated, the longest way round is the shortest way home. Words can be used to transport and amuse and entertain, but they can also be used to destroy. They can freeze you over and douse you in flames. Words can be hurled like grenades, shot like bullets, and slung like arrow. They can radiate the kinetic energy of a shaped charge. Used correctly, they can elevate men and women into positions of power, but used incorrectly, like a politician who straddles a third rail issue, they can be one's downfall. You don't have to delve too deeply in this country's history to see how many have come undone. Michael Richards with his racist onslaught, former Senator George Allen's Macacagate, and Don Imus's strangling of urban slang. No one, regardless of class or ethnicity, is beyond language's pale. We are, to paraphrase the poet Michael Schmidt, at its beck and call, servants of the servants of the muse. Lately, I've been pondering the necessity of words. Inasmuch as I can hardly imagine what it would be like to be mute, there was something strangely compelling about choosing not to speak. Years ago, a good friend of mine went to a monastery for a week wherein she wasn't allowed to talk. Sure, she wouldn't succeed, Suzanne ended up triumphant in her effort, and she returned from the experience imbued with more cognitive clarity than she ever had experienced before. Human beings have the ability to communicate unlike any other creatures on Earth. Graduating from gestures to the first guttural eruption, a leap that our evolutionary ancestor, the chimpanzee, cannot make, we use language as our prime mode of communication. This is a first development akin to the sparking of man's first fire. Yet this aptitude, this capacity for connectivity, is only as authentic as our intentions. Even though I remain steadfastly attached to language, I can't help but wonder how any communication can be as profound as the wordless smile you give to loved one, or how about the unspoken transmission of emotion between pets and people. Not a word is exchanged, and yet the knowledge that affection is mutual is unquestionable. Or is it? Given my penchant for silly made-up language, instead of asking my dogs if they want to go for a walk... I started asking them if they wanted to go till Milwaukee. They got so used to this, all I had to say was, Milwaukee, and they would exuberantly race to the door. Last week, in an effort to curtail the ritual stampede, rather than ask my furry friends if they wanted to go to Milwaukee, I asked them if they wanted to go to Wisconsin. They looked at me for a moment, cocked their little heads in unison, and then made a mad, merry dash to the door. I laughed as I realized that sometimes go means stop, sometimes a windmill can look like a helicopter, and sometimes, just sometimes, you can take your dogs for a walk or you can take a trip to Wisconsin. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Ethan Trask and Josh Lieberson, partners at the design firm Helicopter. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about them. Ethan Trask and Joshua Lieberson are the founding principals of Helicopter, a full-service strategic design consultancy founded in 2002. Helicopter has worked with Condé Nast, Capitol Records, 
Andre Bilage Properties, Hachette, Time Inc., Warner Brothers, Universal, Aristo, Rizzoli, Bloomsbury, The New York Times, and The Washington Post Company on a host of projects ranging from magazine design, book design, identity, web design, and packaging to concept creation and luxury package production. Helicopter has won awards in ID, in print, AIGA, ADC, and they've been nominated for a Grammy Award in packaging. Welcome, Josh and Ethan. Thank you. Hello. Hi. How are you on this fine afternoon? Good. We're windmill. <laughs> <laughs> windmill and helicopter. Isn't that wonderful? Well, I think, you know, windmill is really just a helicopter vertically, right? So how did you guys meet? How did you guys start your business? Okay. Um well, but, let me let me let our listeners know. I'm looking at two extremely different looking people, almost opposites. Ethan is sort of tall and lithe, and Josh is sort of buff. Dwarfing. <laughs> What's that? Dwarfing. No, hardly. But you're very, very different. Even you have to agree to that. So how did you find each other? How did you start your business? How did it all come to be? He actually took an ad out looking for a short um, <laughs> buff. buff partner. Uh, we met because um, I had uh, created a prototype uh, for a magazine for a company called John Brown Publishing, which uh-huh. was a custom publishing company in uh, based in London, and they had pitched this concept to Nike for the Jordan brand, and they had hired me. I had recently stopped working in magazines, and they got my name from, I don't even remember how, uh, and I created this prototype, and that was that. And then six months later, they came back, and they're like, hey, we actually want to make this magazine. At which point, I realized that I was completely incapable of making the magazine by myself and desperately needed to um, find some serious help. Now, why were you incapable of doing it by yourself? Because of the scope or because of a specific talent that you have or didn't have? I think it was more that I had always worked really well in tandem with people. I always enjoyed the partnership. I came from a magazine background. I was really used to the kind of give and take of an art department, um, and I enjoyed a kind of team environment. Um, and but, but beyond that, the scope of the work was too much for one person to actually accomplish. It was making an entire magazine, creating a magazine from scratch. Um, and how did they find you specifically to do this? I had, I think because the photo editor that I'd last worked at, at my last magazine, um, had somehow met the creative director at John Brown and they were basically taking names, and they called me. And, and knows, the mag- maybe I, was this when you were at Us Magazine? It's at Us Weekly. Us yeah. Weekly. Yeah. But this is, I had actually left. It was like a three-month, I'd gone on, you know, walkabout. Mm-hmm. So I came back, and basically the phone rang, did the prototype, um, and then really didn't think anything of it until they came back to me, at which point I called around, and uh, a woman named Mary Jane Fahey, actually, who used to work for Roger Black, had started her own firm. I had done some freelancing with her in the past, she referred me to Ethan, who had also, I guess she'd seen his book, and that was it. And we met at lunch, and I took one, I think I looked at his book for maybe 14 seconds, and I was like, genius! Um, I must <laughs> make this guy. nice thing to be called, Ethan. Yeah. No. no, I mean, his work was incredible. He had incredible sensibility. Um, he also had a drastically different background than I did. I had a very kind of mass-market consumer magazine background, he had a much more rarefied, he'd worked at Visionaire, he'd worked on the redesign of El Decor, um, he'd been in design studios, he had a much kind of wider design uh, background. Mm-hmm. And I just liked him, he was very serious about the work, 
I could tell that he was a fantastic designer. Um, and that was it. And that kind of that first project that we made really established right from the get-go a kind of way in which we worked together, and we just worked really well together. Um, and kind of coming out of that project, you know, I had already incorporated the name Helicopter because I had this crazy idea that, you know, I wanted to have a design studio, mm-hmm. and Ethan had always wanted to have his own design studio. And I basically just threw myself at his mercy and, you know, however we can make this work, let's be partners and let's, you know, make a studio. So we just kind of cobbled together our work and started showing it to people. Um, and at the time, after we finished the, the, it was for Jordan, was the Nike magazine. After we finished that magazine, Ethan and his boyfriend moved to L.A. for a year because uh, Andy was uh, working on a movie. He's a film editor. Um and that was it. I mean, we basically, we cobbled together some work, and we just started shopping it around. And as soon as we got a project, you. we did some work. Now, just before we take our first break, how did you come up with the name Helicopter? Excellent question, Todd. Um, Why not Windmill? <laughs> <laughs> it was Windmill. We changed it. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of searching around for a word that, A, kind of resonated with what I wanted, which was uh, I didn't want something that was had anything necessarily to do with design or graphic design. I just wanted a corporate entity that also wasn't particularly corporate. Mm -hmm. Um, Helicopter I enjoyed because of the idea of uh, movability and an ability to kind of get places quickly, do a variety of tasks. Uh, It is also known as the machine of choice among people Uh, in the know. Okay, well, we're going to take our first break. I want to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the lovely Josh Lieberson and Ethan Trask, partners at the design firm Helicopter. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four hundred ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth—we cover it all. Voice America Business. It has been said that to live is to choose, but to choose well, you must know who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go, and why you want to get there. On Reap What You Sow with host, performance management specialist, and executive coach Alana Daly, achievement and success through expanding yourself and your life is available at the click of a mouse. Reap through redefining your goals. Educate your mind, your body, your conscious, and unconscious. Apply what you learn and plan, and it shall be success over and over again, and wealth result when you. Reap regularly. Reap what you sow with Alana Daily, broadcast each Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Reap what you sow, learn the rules of the game, then play better than anyone else. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow, the CEO and founder of Resonate, a design agency that develops the media identity for clients across a broad range of platforms. Paul, tell us how you begin the process of creating a brand for a client. We create a language that bears the brand of that company. To do that, we will take keywords of a brand attribute, a smart, illuminate, and make that into 
to an icon. And so our job is to provide, quickly define that language. And it's a little bit like sculpting. You got a block, and somewhere in there is that person. And you carve that person out through this process. And the faster you can get to that, the more efficient you are, and the more time you save that customer in getting to market. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Paul Sidlow talks about creating imaginary worlds. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.20 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Josh Lieberson and Ethan Trask, partners at the design firm Helicopter. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Josh or Ethan, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And listeners, I have a confession for you. Well, actually, actually, I have a confession for Josh. <laughs> Josh I have a lied to us. Yeah. He lied to us about how he came up with the name Helicopter for his company. And after much persuasion, I have gotten him to actually agree to tell us the real story. Yeah, so I've been given the green light mainly by Ethan. <laughs> he didn't want to embarrass Ethan yeah. with his bad historical behavior, <laughs> and now we're going to get the real truth about the name. Okay, Alcott. full disclosure. Um, <laughs> never before known and now known to countless millions. Uh, at the time when I um, was searching around for my company name many, many years this ago. This is what, eight years ago? At least. <laughs> yeah. I um, I was also uh, enjoying uh, quite a bit of marijuana at the time. And uh, I was listening to a song by the great Biggie Smalls. The song is called Machine Gun Funk. Do you want to sing a little no, please, no, bit please, first? No, please. No, that's enough. Okay. Enough with the, the disclosure should be enough humiliation for me. And the uh, the lyric was, the rocket launcher, Biggie Stompcha, High as a mother, mm, you can say it on the air. Motherfucking helicopter. Oh, okay. At which point I found the name because I was in fact a helicopter. Uh huh. Sort of like Rocket Man. Exactly. <laughs> and then it was easy. Uh, then once with that under my belt, I could go to my attorney and um, form a company. Uh huh. And he let you in the state that you were. There. They didn't know the story. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so Ethan, what made you decide to become partners with Josh aside from his? Um, chemical dependencies. <laughs> well, he was so easy to work with. <laughs> um, it would, we just worked out really well. We sort of, on the Nike magazine, it worked out really quickly that we could really think about design and talk about it. And um, he was an amazing salesman to sort of the money people to get them interested in what design was and just to basically sell it to them. And so we would come up with these great page layouts that were kind of crazy, and he would march in there, and then he'd come out, and he'd be, like, signed off, and we would go to the next one. And yeah, I, I do have a, a personal belief, or maybe not so personal, that all it really takes is a good presentation to get something through. But I, I, I often don't get uh, partners on the show together, and, and in, in as much as I'd like to talk to you about your, your vast body of extraordinary work, I also want to talk a little bit about... You're calling me fat. 
vast. I said vast. <laughs> no, I said buff before. Um, but you're just realizing that now, right? Um, I want to talk to you about what it takes to get a business off the ground. I mean, you met Josh. Josh, you saw Ethan's book. You, there was obviously a nice synergy between the two of you. Despite Ethan moving to the West Coast with his boyfriend, you still felt that there was this connection that could maintain a business. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, to begin with, it was sporadic freelance projects, you know. But, but what gives you the courage to think, okay, we're going to join forces, we're going to have a business, we're going to be able to support ourselves, potentially our families yeah. down the line. I think How I, do you get that courage together? I think it's kind of an overdeveloped ego. Really? Um, you know, or maybe you're just too stupid to understand that, you know, this is actually really hard. Yeah, and we were uh, naive. And what? We were naive. Yeah, I think we're still naive. We keep a kind of pleasant naivete about us in terms of uh, not allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by the daily rigors of really being a small business first. Mm-hmm. And we happen to be a design studio, but we're first and foremost, we suffer all of the indignities and problems of running a small business. What are the biggest problems for you? I think it, you know, the common problems I would say are cash flow mm-hmm. is a classic problem. Um, being brought in for uh, the wrong jobs. What would be considered a wrong job? Uh, jobs where, you know, we don't have a marketing plan. Our marketing is word of mouth. So mm-hmm. somebody who we've done uh, a job for and they've recommended us to somebody else, that somebody else, they are just making a phone call to a design studio as opposed to actually needing the services that we offer. There's a lot of um, time spent in actually figuring out, like, this is a good client. Like, this is a good project. This is something worth pursuing. This is an area of business we should really be pursuing, as opposed to kind of going down wrong paths just because the phone rang. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of cash flow, cash flow is just a classic dynamic for any business. You know, you're constantly managing uh, invoices going out, getting the money back in, Dealing with the vendors, sometimes you know when we're out putting the cash for the vendors, there can be a lag between that. We're being used as a bank. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. For our clients. Would um, you say that that is the most challenging aspect of having your own business, managing the cash? I would say I would say like managing staff. How many How many staff do you have at the moment? It's <laughs> pathetically small. We've <laughs> one. Yeah, we have one guy at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, we were up to seven, and that's tough. It was just too much. Mm-hmm. It was too much, and we realized that, like, we had just been kind of hiring frantically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of cliches that get bandied about, but there really is something to the one, if I may just point to one cliche in particular, of working smarter instead of working harder. Mm-hmm. We work as hard as we could possibly work. It's not a, you know, and I think that's probably true for any small business that stays actually in business. Um, you know, we're what? We're six years into this now. Mm-hmm. Um and the trick is actually identifying the things that you really excel at and what is your point of differentiation in the marketplace. Like, what do you do better than other people? What do you think you two do better than other people? I think we're incredible on radio shows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've been told that before. That's why I invited you. Yeah. Um, Got to get Josh and Ethan. They're so good on the radio. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's one of those things where I don't think we have a kind of succinct, like, pithy mm-hmm. statement about it. I know that we're, and this maybe gets down to being naive, maybe, but what we're good at is thinking about things differently. Mm -hmm. 
And well, I think also we're really we're aware that the graphic design service is a service industry, and we don't really consider ourselves artists. We don't really think that like our design is the end all be all that should exist, and there's no other ways of answering the question. Um, and I think what we do well is work together with a client to push them to get something um, that's really interesting and solves the problem for them and works sort of and use design to get that rather than just do design for design's sake. Mm -hmm. Now, you work in a variety of mediums in terms of finding the thing that you do best. You work in print. You've obviously worked for many magazines. You've redesigned them, uh, Domino, uh, Car and Driver, Jane. Uh, you do a lot of interactive, the website for Slate, Malcolm Gladwell's website, packaging, books, magazines. You know, how do you manage to do all of this work? How do you manage to do all of this in a multidisciplinary way? It's, I mean, it, for us, it's all the same approach. Like, it's basically there's a problem, and we approach it the same way. We talk to the client about what they want to, like, get, what they are not happy with, with what they have. And then we just sort of sit and work it out. And it's a lot of whether you're doing a static page or you're doing a website or you're doing packaging, you're playing sort of with all the same ideas. And Josh is much is really into more of the product and the production and is way more detail-oriented than I am. I'm sort of much more like bigger picture, and um, but Josh is really sort of into the, you know, the texture and the shine of a piece of paper and its mm -hmm. color. And, you know, for me, a lot of it can just sort of be the same. I, I love it and appreciate it, but I can't, like get into that nitty-gritty of it. Do you have a, a specific preference for a particular medium? Or do you really feel that you're generalist? I don't. Like, web is hard for right now, I think, because, I mean, I think you can't ignore it right now. It's such a huge part mm -hmm. of, you know, communicating a brand and being part of a sort of um, a system of communication. But it's, they're so, it's so about functionality that for me, a lot of what is amazing about the web is the programming aspect. It's not necessarily the design, and I don't know anything about programming. So mm -hmm. it's not, you know, I feel like I can come up with a good design or we can, but it's really how you work through it and make it work for you and um, exhibit it than it is about, you know, the pages that we end up designing. So for me, the web is the least of that I get excited about, though. We are, I do get excited about organizing it, organizing the information and thinking yeah, about think that. Architecture. Clearly. I mean, I think where we kind of excel with all of our projects is in organizing systems of information mm -hmm. on a very basic level, you know. And that's as true for the art catalogs as it is for websites. Where the website goes off into a different zone is that, you know, you're really only as good as the technical aspects of what can be achieved. You know, and who's actually doing that um, that work? How much time do you guys spend on the web, playing and surfing? And I'm a freak. I'm going to say uh, probably under 20 minutes a day. Really? Oh, I thought you were going to say you're a freak. You spend about five or six, and no. I was going to be like, yo, let's wave that freak flag together. For him, it's a total tool. It's like we yeah. need to get a sound module, and we've never found a sound module before. And what do you mean by that? Like we did this book, um, Tony Tim Hawkinson for Nighthouse, and in one of the pages, there's a sound module that makes the sound of a machine that mm -hmm. is in the photo. 
and Josh will go on and literally come back in five minutes and be like, oh, I found one in China, and I've emailed them, and they're going to send us a sample. And, like, he's amazing in that way, but no, he will never, ever go and, like, tool around and look at websites or... And you shouldn't. You should be working. I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I just have to play. <laughs> you know, but I, but I realized, I mean, we had some... We had uh, a kid in our studio, and he worked with us for five years, and... Uh, he was great, and I realized that for him, going online was like traveling. Yes, I feel the same way. I absolutely feel the same way. And for me, traveling is traveling. Yeah, for me, traveling is a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have to take our next break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Josh Lieberson and Ethan Trask, partners at the design firm Helicopter. We'll be right back with our broadcast and a number of callers. After these messages, please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow of design agency Resonate. Paul, when you're creating a brand for a client, the worlds you can create can become quite complex. Tell us about that. A specific example there is a promo we recently did for The Triangle, which is a new sci-fi series. Typically, those spots are pure imagination and pure complexity. So in this case, it's a, The Triangle. It's this kind of fictionalized place where planes, boats, and people disappear. To create that kind of uh, mysterious world, we created all the components as layers by using After Effects. I'm talking about a layer app that uh, is 150 layers deep where uh, everything, every component from uh, lightning to waves to ships and 3D clouds and the rain are all rendered from the same scene as separate components. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Paul Sidlow talks about the future of design. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building in New York City, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Josh Lieberson and Ethan Trask, partners at the design firm Helicopter. And if you'd like to join the conversation, if you have questions for Josh and Ethan, now is your chance. Please call 1-866-472-5790. And actually, gentlemen, we do have two callers on the phone. First, we have Suzanne. Suzanne from New Jersey. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi. 
Um, my question is, is it, what's it like to work with such high-profile magazine editors? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's a broad generalization. <laughs> Thanks for calling. <laughs> um, in what do you, do you mean? Have a in more what specific? Way? Yeah. Um, I guess with their design input and just personalities. Well, we have a very unique uh, situation in those jobs in that we are not we are not the art department. So when you come to hire us, you are hiring. Uh, we kind of have the the wonderful, um, impenetrable cloak of being an outside consultant. So they've already made a determination that we are experts. And once you uh, go to an expert, it's not the same as talking to your employee. So we have a much more kind of peer relationship with the people that we work with than um, the conventional art department uh, relationship, and I, you know, maybe we've just been really lucky, but we've had really good relationships with the people that we've worked with, and it's kind of crucial, not just in the magazines, but in anything, it's really crucial for the type of work that we do that we have a very close collaborative relationship with our clients. In the magazine world, the advantage we have is that we both have a strong editorial background, so we really understand the nuts and bolts of a magazine and also the pressures of being an editor-in-chief that are not at all related to what you may consider having to do with the actual making of the magazine. You know, there's an enormous amount of work that goes into being an editor that nobody ever sees in the pages of the magazine. Um, For example, give us one good example. For example, going to lunch with advertisers, Uh. you know, four times a week. You know, having scheduled meetings up the yin-yang with, you know, thousands of people from all over the place and having about you know, 45 minutes a day where you get to actually do work. Mm. So, you know, we're very scheduled, we're very organized, and we like to make a lot of decisions. We don't try to drop a lot of stuff on somebody's lap. We make a lot of decisions on our own, and we try to really, you know, bring to them just what we think the specific problems are and not overwhelm anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is Suzanne still there? Yeah. Was that at all useful? That was useful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Suzanne. <laughs> Bye-bye. Uh, so, so no diva-esque editors, a la Devil Wears Prada. No, that's Ethan. <laughs> okay. I'm the diva. <laughs> Gregory, I believe you're on the line as well. Gregory from New York. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Josh. Hi. Um, since you guys work obviously really closely together, <laughs> um, I assume he's actually sitting on my lap right now. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, okay. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that design matters. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure this must happen. I'm sure you disagree uh, on things, but when you come to a design decision or, or a, an approach to strategy that you might have, and you both might feel very strongly about something, if you disagree, do you have a system of how to work that out already, how to negotiate that and sort of cut to the chase and not just cut up in the emotion of, of you know, what, what each of you want? Um, I don't know. It's a little more organic than that. We really talk things out a lot. So if Josh has his point of view on something, um, I will sort of, there's usually a good idea in there that then I can latch on to and vice versa with myself. And we just sort of, we really, I mean, we literally, our chairs are like two inches away from each other where we sit and work. And we just sort of talk everything out all the time. So nothing ever gets to a point where 
it's so thought out that there's no voice for another person to be part of it. I also you think it's it's like any relationship, you know, whether it's a, I mean, a partnership is a relationship. I mean, I see Ethan more than I see my wife, you know, and the the reality and of I sit it on is, his lap. Yeah, <laughs> the reality of it is that you you have to kind of make <laughs> you have to make a decision and you have to kind of say, okay, these are things I really care about. These are things I don't really care about, but these are things that Ethan really cares about. So that's it. You know, it's not, it's never really a fight. We never really get down to the level of um, pulling our hair out and... So you don't have fist fights or wrestle to the ground? I mean, I beat the crap out of him on the way over here, but... No, it's, it's, it's a very, I think that's why, you know, that's why we've lasted this long, and it's why... Um, Whatever little thing that went off in my brain when I met Ethan, one of the things was I recognized somebody with whom I could get along, you know, and I think that the ability to make compromises all the time, not just in the internal uh, design decisions that we may be making, but also in terms of our communications with clients and vendors, etc., everything is a series of compromises. The trick is knowing, you know, what is something that you can compromise on versus something that you cannot. And uh, what happens when you both feel, or does it ever happen, that you both feel that you can't compromise on something and that happens to be a polar opposite point of view? That. Have we had that? Um, not between ourselves, but we have with like a client or someone we're working with. Yeah. But you're still both on the same side. Yeah, I mean, we really approach things differently and allow, I think, each other to have their own little space, like, as I said before, like Josh is, you know, thinks much more about detail than I will, and he loves to think about detail and does think about detail, and I'm kind of not interested in it. Mm -hmm. So I work on a project and sort of the more bigger picture thing, and I'm much my design is sort of more looser, and then I pass the design off to Josh, and he will come and really sort of work on all the little detail things that I've kind of just given a like a sketch to, and then I will sort of take it back and then re-sort of open it back up again, and we sort of just go back and forth until it comes to a place where we think it's it's finally solved the problem. I think that's the difference. We don't see the design as our, mine, or his. It's we're actually trying to solve a problem, and it's sort of outside of our ourselves. Mm-hmm. You well, guys you are really a great example. I, I think all, all people in business like that should take an example from you guys. So a lot of good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so you've worked on a, a number of celebrity projects. You've had some really cream of the crop types of projects. You've worked for, uh, you've done a logo for Madonna's T-shirt company, CD graphics for Liz Fair and Elvis Costello, a book for Lenny Kravitz. What have those experiences been like? Um, the Madonna one's different, but the and Lenny Kravitz was sort of different because it came through. Um, Josh's cousin, who had done a lot of work with him already, and Josh had spent time with Lenny, so he was less of a celebrity and more... He was um, just Lenny. He was Uncle just Lenny. Lenny at that point. Um, <laughs> so what was that like? So this was before he was famous? No. No. no, no. Um, full disclosure, Josh's cousin is a photographer named Mark Seliger. Okay. And so Mark had been had already taken a lot of uh, pictures of Lenny and hung out with Lenny, and they wanted to do a book of oh. Mark's photos for Arena Editions. Yeah. Right? And uh, nice memory. that was like the second thing we worked on. So um, 
I mean, in That's one level... That's Your first project was for Nike, for Michael Jordan, and your second project was for Lenny Kravitz. Yes. Yeah. The only other person I know that's as lucky as you two is Peter Buchanan Smith. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, continue. I'm sorry. Um, so, I mean, in many ways you don't actually have much, like, you don't deal much with the celebrity. No, you I know, guess. There's, yeah. there's so many middle people. But, but rumor has it you did deal directly with Madonna. Yes. So Madonna called me story. on my cell phone. She just called you on your cell phone. Yes. And, wait, did you see her number? Yes, I got her. Well, I have to. I feel like you I have. Just, you have Madonna's cell phone number. Well, I'm sure she just call yeah. Madonna now. <laughs> I think I need to set the scene here, though, because it's quite great. We were in a meeting. We were in a like what would be considered a very high-level uh, editorial meeting uh, at Domino, which is a magazine that we were working on at the time. Um, and we're with the editor in chief and uh, the number two editor, and it's me and Ethan. We're reviewing pages, and I think we just got back from Focus. There's all kinds of mishugas going on. And I knew that this phone call was coming in, um, but nobody else knew the phone call was coming in. And suddenly, in the middle of the meeting, Ethan's phone rings, which is a, you know, not a great thing to have happen in the middle of a meeting. And he's like, sorry, excuse me, you gotta take the phone call. <laughs> um, and go on, go on. So she was like, Ethan, it's Madonna. Now, did you, do you remember that movie, The American President, when the president, who's, I don't remember, one of those weird stars that, married young women who calls um, what's her name who's Annette married Benning. to Warren Beatty Annette Benning. Annette Benning and he's like this is the president she hangs up the phone did you want to hang up the phone on Madonna did no. you really think it was her I knew she was going to be calling because okay. um, I'd been told but um, yeah she was just very frank she wanted to do a line of t-shirts that had to do with Kabbalah mm-hmm. and she was like and I want it to be gangsta and I was like gangsta or gangster and she was like both I want to be both so gangsta slash gangster Kabbalah right. slash Kabbalah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, and we just sort of talked about, like, and then it was, she was just like any client, you know. We just talked about what she wanted to achieve out of it and when she needed it. And so not a diva? No, she was actually loved all the stuff we sent and took, we were only supposed to do two samples and she was going to take one idea and she took five and had them made and... Um, we did a logo for her little company, and then... Um, now, for anybody that wants to see this work, it's on your website, which is www.hellochopper.com, because Josh and Ethan also have, share a, a love of playing around with words, as I do, hellochopper.com. Well, that and the fact that helicopter, some asshole got that before we got to that. <laughs> yeah, some big <laughs> helicopter company, I'm sure. Yeah. Damn them. Um, so, so go on. So, um, n- nothing, no other juicy bits? No, it's never that juicy. I mean, they're just, they're normal you yeah. know, people that, I mean, the problem sometimes is they have way more power over design than, you know, they know about, but, I would which say is the problem with, I think, a lot of businesses and higher-ups and execs. So. I mean, I, I would say the only thing about them that is kind of interesting is that they are so used to having people try to take advantage of them, that they're very guarded. Um, and so once you do kind of establish a relationship and you demonstrate that you're listening to them and mm-hmm. you're responding to them, then they are, they're basically a corporation represented in one person. Mm-hmm. You, know, um, you know, she's a $100 million enterprise, but she's the CEO, chairman of the board, and board of directors, and all of the shareholders. Um, you know, the, they're no different in t- on, on the project level and on the level of how we're interacting with them. You can't ever for a second be like, oh, my God, I'm talking to Elvis Costello. Mm. So you didn't do that when you were talking to him? I did at first, but uh, I got over it. But uh, the uh, it's just about doing the work. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Now, you also have done some work for Rachel Yamagata, who's a fairly new artist, who is just a wonderful singer-songwriter. Um, what is the... You didn't like her? No. Oh. <laughs> Josh is sort of looking at me quizzically. What is the what is the approach that you take when working with a new artist? Is there is, is it different from working with a more established one? Um, I think... I mean, that's sort of the same as this... Uh, gallery we're working with now, which is all at my house. Like we did a Richard Tuttle project, and mm-hmm. um, there's, it's just you know collaborating. It's how much they want to be involved. They usually come with a lot of ideas, and what we try to do is pick through those ideas to the sort of root of what they're really wanting. Mm. You know, and we don't really take things at face value. We sort of question them and you know ask them what their influences were and try to sort of get to the backstory and not necessarily on the story they're telling you up front. Yeah, yeah, I always I always wonder whenever I see an artist's name next to a designer's name on the credit on a CD cover, I always think what a nightmare that nightmare. must have been for the designer. Yeah. I think what, you know, the, with all of the projects, I mean you asked earlier if there's something that we think we excel at. I think what we excel at is coming to a point of view and then establishing and articulating that point of view throughout all of the pieces. I think that all of the work that we do, what we are certainly trying to accomplish, is having a degree of consideration in all of the details, really luxuriating in the details. I mean, Ethan can talk about how he's not interested in the details all he wants, but the reality is we never think of anything that is actually simple. Mm-hmm. Um, it may look simple when it's done, but the details are how we get there. Um, and I think in the case of Rachel Yamagata, the particular challenge with that was she had an idea of making a high school yearbook page for her CD, and we were trying to suggest that she was perhaps a more sophisticated artist than that. Mm, and, yes. And it's really kind of helping them recognize not who they think they are, but also what they're projecting into the world. Yeah, I had an old boss that once told me, don't ever dress for the job you have, dress for the job you want to have. I think that goes the same for fledgling artists. Um, So, well, let's talk a little bit about magazines, uh, because you've obviously done some very uh, extraordinary work for some of the world's biggest magazines. Certainly, Car and Driver is one of the biggest, and you recently redesigned that. How do you approach the redesign of a magazine? Um, we do a lot of uh, sort of. We try to take time in the front end of it to do a lot of like research of going through any of the sort of tests that they've been doing or focus groups. We do you attend those or do you just yeah. get the yeah, information? No. Yeah, no. I mean, it depends how it is. It's been different on each one. But we really find that the more information you have um, up front about how people are thinking about it, worrying about it, you know, wanting it to be, hoping about it, the more you have all that on the table, the more you can start really shaping um, what the conversation is going to be and how you are going to like sort of fulfill all these goals that it has. Mm-hmm. And um, we each magazine has com- been completely different. The so way you've done Domino, Domino, you've done Jane, Car and Driver, Car and Culture Driver. and Travel, yeah. we launched Radar, Radar, 
And then there's a secret project on your website that I was trying in every which way to find out about and have yet to be successful. And I can tell by the way you're both looking at me that you have no intention of fulfilling my desire to know that. And that's, I'm getting nods, I'm getting nods. Alright, so let's, what would be the difference, aside from the obvious, um, genre difference between something like Jane and Car and Driver, um, what other differences are there in the way you would approach different magazines like that? Um, I mean, what do you think? Well, I think it's a, it's a, the question is how much are we allowed to think about is really the way of defining the project. Is like what are we actually being given to consider and how immersive an experience can it be? Uh, in the launch of Domino, we were given the whole hog. You mm-hmm. know, we were given, we were in there before they had a name when it was just a concept and, the when we're able to really express domino ness through all the materials down to the consumer marketing material we treat it like a brand did you name it we were in on the naming we did not name it that honor goes to Cynthia Kling who's a contributing editor there who um, you know shouted out domino at one meeting why domino what what is that what is the reference to domino other than well the amazing the amazing thing about domino regardless of necessarily what the impetus was for it was that everybody in focus group after focus group after focus group, these women would get the magazine in front of them, and this question would come up. Well, when you hear the word domino, what do you think about that? It's like, oh, like the domino effect. Like, you get a chair, and you put it in your room, and suddenly you have to change your wallpaper, and then you have to change oh, your... Okay. So, you know, and everybody just got it. They got the idea of the magazine, um... Or they're like, it's modern, it's a game, it's fun, it's about pieces. Yeah, I mean... It was not at know, all for the... The URL was available. (laughs) That was huge. These are talking about a business in terms of like starting a business today. Try getting the URL. Yeah. Yeah, that's a major consideration for all of these magazines. You know. Um, And just to get back to the idea of like Domino and what we get to think about, the difference between a launch and a redesign is that at a redesign, when you come in. You're dealing, nobody's calling us because things are going great. They call us because things are not going great. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, research that needs to happen in terms of figuring out really, well, what isn't going great? You know, because the number, the, the reasons that they will look at, they're constantly trying to kind of A, monetize it, and B, quantify it in terms of, you know, oh, where our newsstand numbers are down, the magazine's a disaster. And you're like, well... Is that an accurate way to depict it? Like, do you know? So we kind of take a more organic approach and look at the magazine, not just from the level of design. We're integrating the editors with the art department, with the production cycle, with workflow, you know, to bring in a unified idea of how the magazine should be, as opposed to just like knocking it out, which is how magazines, once they're up and running, tend to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for lack of a better word, we end up branding these magazines so mm-hmm. that they have a, a like a cohesive core and vernacular and voice that everyone can then use to make it and build off of it and add to and make decisions on their own. We have another another call, gentlemen. But before we we get to the call, I wanted to ask you: How do you know when the work you've done is good? Mm, I don't know. What do you mean? Well, when you've done something and you're like, okay. I like this, it's ready to move on. Is it just as simple as I like it? Or is there 
a self-assessment that you use in order to gauge the quality of the work? I think we have like a weird list of, like a checklist in our head of things it needs to succeed in doing. And so could you could you articulate any of those, or are they more sort of nebulous? Well, they're, no, they're not nebulous. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you know, coming from a from a reader perspective or a user perspective, like, does it work on that level? You know, do I understand the mission of this thing? Boom. Um, is it clear? Uh, is it entertaining? Does it have uh, a kind of actual tactile value? I mean, one of the things that we're intimately aware of in everything that we make is that a tree was cut down for this thing. So if a tree was going to come down for us to make this thing, it should be worth keeping. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is as true in a postcard as it is uh, on anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, really the, the, the limits to quality are your own creative limits more than anything else. Um, you know, we actually had a conversation with Malcolm. You mentioned him as a client. And he was saying that uh, constraint, having constraints is actually uh, the boon to creativity. Like having a constraint is how something actually gets great. And when you have no constraints, it's difficult to kind of modulate. And the constraints we always have are time and budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in terms of our checklist, we try to get beyond just the level of making an aesthetic decision. We assume that the aesthetic decisions we're going to be making are actually good decisions or else we really would not be in business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's all the other criteria which kind of change from project to project depending on the audience, depending on uh, the client. Uh, depending on time and materials. Right. And I think also, too, we sort of imbibe in whatever we're doing that it has its own voice and identity. And when you start working with and playing with it, you it you just sort of check back in with it and make sure that it is still, um, it is speaking a language that is coherent and it's not sort of all over the place. And, you know, there's not too many of, like, crazy different references that don't make mm-hmm. sense or you can't find your way through it or... You know, we just, um, we kind of like get an idea about something, just work on it, work on it, and shape it. and Keep shaping. Yeah. Well, before we close, we have one more question. We have Isabel calling. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, everybody. Um, I really don't have a question. I'm just really, really enjoying this interview. I just want you to know I think you guys are great. You're funny. This interview has been really insightful. And you seem to have a great, wonderful dynamic. And it's just a pleasure to listen to this. Well, aren't you sweet? <laughs> yeah, last week's duo, they, they didn't really answer the questions, and I asked them a question, and they didn't answer, and they told me to call them at a certain time, and they weren't even there. Oh, and bastards. I don't even feel compelled. I feel like the information is so free-flowing here that I just want you to know I think it's a great show. Keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Isabel. You're welcome. Very sweet. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. So, gentlemen, what's next for you? What's what's next on well, your first, horizons? Well, first, I got to cut Isabel a check for fifty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, thanks very much. I'll be here all week. <laughs> uh, what's the question? What's what, next? What's for next? Us? We have only a few minutes to not even a few minutes till we close. So, what's next for Helicopter? What What's the next big, big hurdle for you? I don't next know, it's project, great. next idea. I mean, just kind of beyond the projects is just kind of aside like, from your radio career. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's just this idea, you know, we've been in business six years. We have the, the work keeps coming. The projects are steady. Uh, and I think what we really want to figure out how to do from here on out is take a little more ownership of the direction in which we go. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which isn't the same thing as being more selective with the work we do, because I think we're already fairly selective, but really, you know, could be helicopter projects, could be stuff we make, um, you know, where we really love the branding, we love the uh, creating something from the ground up, and the X factor is what that something is, it could really be anything. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. I look forward to hearing more about your secret project in the future. Um, I'd like to also say a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe, my executive producer, Brian Travis, also Ruben, who's doing my show today, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon and Sterling. Joining me the week after next. Next week we are off. The week after next on Design Matters, live from San Francisco, is the creative director of Apple, Alan Dye. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you in two weeks. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.